You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast interview with Linda S. Birnbaum, former director of the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program. You can isolate these chemicals, but usually we might test for a chemical, but it's not to say how it reacts with another chemical. Is this true that we test for fewer than 100 chemicals in water? But there's thousands. There are thousands, um, just like there are in air or just like there are in food. You know, we sometimes compartmentalize so much, you know, we forget that what is food? Food is made up of chemicals, right? And I think we need to be, begin to be broader in our understanding because for example, we all have on us and within us our microbiomes. And we think a lot about the GI bacteria. And we now know that if people are obese, they have a very different microbial content in their gut than people who are not obese. Or, or we know, for example, that a baby born by C-section has a different microbial composition than a baby born vaginally. And we know that these things can have impacts. We know that many of the bacteria have the ability, for example, to metabolize some of the contaminants as well as things in our food, for example. And we know that you can have a different response depending upon what people are eating. For, and that's just an example. But I think you were getting at the larger issue, which is the complexity, really, of the exposures. I mentioned that we should remember that what you eat is chemicals as well. But we also have, and I mentioned the microbiome, which are different kinds of microbials, not only bacteria, it's virus and fungi, for example, and certain parasitic protozoans. And we also need to think about things like, you know, what we routinely um, say are social behaviors. So, you know, if you're drinking alcohol or if you're enjoying some marijuana or something like that, you may respond very differently than you would have not. Plus, there are so many chemicals. In the United States, we used to say there are at least 80,000 chemicals in commerce, of which less than 20% have had any testing. And the really good point that you brought up, Mia, was, but wait, we're not exposed to one at a time. Is there interaction going on? So the answer is, in most cases, we don't know. Um, there are some attempts. People have, for example, um, done experiments where they would say, I'm going to you know, look at chemical A and chemical B, and then I'm going to combine them and see what happens. But that, again, is very short of the complexity of the reality of hundreds or thousands of chemicals that you get exposed to on a daily basis. I, I would say there's a term that people use, um, something from nothing. And that's because when you do some studies where you use levels that are supposedly safe of chemicals, but you test the, a bunch of them together, all of a sudden we get a response. And so that clearly says there's something you're adding up all their little effects, or maybe you are enhancing the effects of a few. In most cases, we don't know the answer to that. What developments or what progress do you think that we've made in inclusivity in your lifetime? And also, what do you think there is left to do? Well, inclusivity is one of my favorite words. I thought I was the one who created it about 45 or 30 years ago, maybe more. But, um, because it, it, it can apply to full inclusion of many on many topics. It's not just male, female. It's not just black or Asian or white. You know, it's not just rich or poor. It's all that. And we enrich our work 
with the more diversity that we have. So it's, I think some of us were so conditioned to the lack of diversity that I would find myself unwittingly, say, setting up a program, a, a symposium or a series of lectures or, or a meeting. And, and all of a sudden I'd look at the composition and it was all men. And then I would say, oh my gosh, how did I do that? You know, and how can I blame the guys for doing that if I do it? And you got to step back and say, wait a minute, there are qualified women, for example. There are qualified people of, of different races or ethnicities that we need to be involving. And it just leads to better work. We're not anywhere where we need to be. I would say the issue of combining work and a family has not progressed nearly as far as I'd like to have seen it. Um, I was very lucky. I mean, I married for a very, very long time. And I have a husband who um, retired when he was 55. And he did a lot of this helpful. He always did a lot of the helpful stuff that needed to be done at home and, and to have a house. Not everybody has that. Um, I thought I actually did work um, part-time for a total of five years. When my kids were little, I have three children now, very grown children, <laughs> grandchildren, but, um, you know, when they, when they were little and I don't think, and I've tried to tell young women, I don't think it made any difference. You know, when I had been director of NIEHS a few years earlier than I was, maybe well, what's the difference? I had the, the, the joy of being able to spend more time with young children, with my young children. Um, I, I, I had thought that we as societies would be doing a better job of, um, of share, job sharing, for example. So you would have two people doing this, you know, each sharing a job that hasn't worked out very much. I've also observed that when you have like review panels, um, if people work part-time, they have a really hard time evaluating them fairly. In other words, they often will, they often, they'll say, oh, okay, you're only working half time. So we only expect half the number of publications, but they don't, <laughs> you know? And, and, and so I think that's, those are some opportunities. I think when we get to some of our more diverse populations, you know, valuing, traditional ecological knowledge, as well as scientific knowledge is really, really important. You know, I said before how I um, insisted that at NIEHS, all of our programs studying environmental health, you know, had to have um, community engagement as part of it. And I think because the ecological knowledge can be very important. You know, when someone says, you know, I'll give you one quick example. Um, there was asbestos poisoning from a mine just outside of town in northern Montana. And it's a beautiful narrow valley with a river running through it and snow-capped peaks on either side. Beautiful location. But this is the one Superfund site in the United States where there are clearly people who died from the exposure. You had a huge number of people die from mesothelioma, asbestosis, and other asbestos-related diseases. And talking to the indigenous people from those area, they said, oh, we never lived in that area. 
Nobody ever set up. We might have traveled through it, but we never lived there because it was a sick area. So they didn't know what was causing their illness, but they knew it wasn't healthy to be there. And I think those are the kinds of things we have to be ready to listen to. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listened to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.